So our speaker today is Molly Joke Delight Whitehood. Whitehead. So, <laughs> so many uh, names. Molly came to our Forestville Zendo and did the winter ongo with us 10, 11, 12 years ago. And then, but she was, she and Chris. And she was then on her way to Bloomington where she wanted to and then proceeded to ordain as a priest with Shohaku Okamura and uh, stayed there for four years and had a group in Maine and came back to the Bay Area and is continuing to, we, we're comrades in arms. She, she is Shohaku's premier editor. <laughs> is on her fifth, I think, book now? Fifth book, yes. Of his. And as I said to her before, Shohaku's books sound like English now. <laughs> <laughs> I worked with him earlier, and he's, uh, he's a stubborn guy. <laughs> and uh, so his English wasn't as fluently English always as she has managed to persuade him to be. Because the ideas are wonderful. Shohaku is, uh, was the last transmitted priest of uh, Uchiyama Roshi. And so this is the connection of the Sawaki Uchiyama Roshi Tozen line. She had started practicing, after five years in Japan, not practicing Zen, but visiting temples. Uh, she came back and went to Tasahara for a few years, so she knows corn and doujin from then. And then stopped briefly, I think, at city center, came up with practice with us while she was living in the area and was continued on to Bloomington. Uh, and now living in the Bay Area has resurfaced. So she's a somewhat familiar face, I think, to some people here. And she and Chris are sort of making this their home saga, although they live over an hour away. <laughs> Not too much more than that. Uh, I think I'll leave the rest to you. All right. Okay. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Um, good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> so uh, exactly seven nights ago, I had a strange dream. Because Can everyone hear me okay? Because this dream is very important. <laughs> I was supposed to give a talk at Dogen's temple, Aheji, but I had lost track of time chatting with the female priests there. Dream, remember? <laughs> I, was also, <laughs> I was also having trouble getting my head properly shaved before the talk. I had sort of half shaven it, and so I had kind of a mohawk thing going on. And so I was rummaging around the women's bathroom looking for a razor so I could, you know, look appropriate, finish the job. But all I could find in the cupboards there in the women's bathroom were these ancient-looking carved stones, you know, these beautiful Japanese-looking stones. And I wondered if that's what women priests in Japan had to use to shave their heads. <laughs> So I was trying to imagine scouring the hair off my head with a stone when I realized that I completely missed the time for my talk. And I felt bad. But then I consoled myself that I was going to give another talk at Stone Creek in a week. <laughs> and I liked that place a lot better anyway. <laughs> no head shaving stones. So I'll spare you an analysis of this dream, although I think it's very interesting, um, beyond saying that I do indeed uh, love it here at Stone Creek and feel very much at home 
uh, even though Chris and I cannot make it here every week. Um, but as Jisho mentioned, we practiced at uh, the temple's previous incarnation in Forestville about 10 years ago when we lived in Pengrove. So um, we love this place because it's a wonderfully welcoming and down-to-earth sangha, um, which is harder to come by than it should be. Um, and we also deeply appreciate the teachings here from Jisho, from Charlie, and from Sarah, and also from many others. Uh, one of the things I most like about this temple is that different voices are welcomed and encouraged, and that the validity of those voices doesn't depend on certain clothing. Um, so I think that's important. Uh, like Jisho, and as she mentioned, I've uh, worked as an editor of Buddhist books, although I think also like Jisho, editing isn't one of my favorite activities. Um, but art and Zen practice are. So I'm going to talk about those things today and the connection between them, the, the one that I find. Um, in some respects, this talk is uh, the one that got away. Um, because a few years ago, someone asked me to write a book chapter about Zen and beauty and what it means to live a beautiful life. I agreed to do this and shortly afterward was diagnosed with Lyme disease, um, which is a very frightening and poorly understood illness uh, that has been mostly met with ignorance and denial by the, the mainstream medical establishment. So I got sicker and sicker, and I couldn't write this essay about how to live a beautiful life, as I had promised to do, uh, basically because I had lost my ability to find beauty in life. I was struggling so hard just to keep living. For me, this failure to find beauty in life, uh, even in this moment of great suffering, uh, it felt like I had failed in my imagination and in my practice. I mean, I'm a Zen priest, right? I should be able to find beauty in suffering. Um, I've always believed that um, whether we uh, paint or write or play music or dance or do none of those things, that we are each the artist of our own life and that life and spiritual practice and art all have a lot in common. Although we often experience life's events as random, we know that all things have causes, and even when we're not trying to make a design, patterns are created. The question is, are we choosing these patterns, or are they compelling us? Art or karma? a liberated imagination, or compulsive repetition. The circumstances of our lives often feel beyond our control, because they often are. But for me, this is where the art comes in. Every medium has its potentials and its limits, and it's these idiosyncrasies that make creativity meaningful. Creativity is not making something out of nothing. That would be magic, which I would love to be able to do. 
Creativity is making something from a given set of conditions and materials. So the restrictions are important. Certain kinds of art seem to stop time, like photography, painting, or writing, while other forms collaborate with time, like music, dance, and life. One of my favorite artists, the sculptor Andy Goldsworthy, transcends this distinction that I've just made by creating art in nature using materials at hand. For example, he painstakingly assembles huge arches of ice and sews together streamers of rainbow-colored leaves with thorns. He begins with a vision of what he wants to make, and then his vision meets the conditions of the day. It's light, temperature, wind, and rain. And he collaborates with these elements. You know, he doesn't just throw up his hands and go, okay, today's a bad day, I'll come back tomorrow. The ice arches he builds are just as beautiful when they're melting as when they're standing strong. And perhaps most beautiful of all, when the tide comes in and the waves begin slowly to carry them away. Goldsworthy says of his art, perfection in every work is not the aim. I prefer works that are fashioned by the compromises forced on me by nature, whether it be an incoming tide, the end of the day, thawing snow, shriveling leaves, or the deadline of my own lifetime. What he calls the compromises forced on me by nature could also be called our lives. We're given particular bodies and minds, talents and shortcomings, families and environments, and challenged to make something of them. Ideally, I think, something meaningful and beautiful. We do this through a lifetime's accumulation of choices. Choices about how to spend our time and energy, what to think about, which stories to tell ourselves about the world. These stories are tremendously powerful. They can give us enthusiasm and inspiration, or they can entangle us in beliefs, accurate or not, that drain our vitality and will. Of course, we're always free to reimagine our stories at any time. The children's author, Mo Willems, wrote a book called Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs. He said the moral of the tale is that if you find yourself in the wrong story, you can leave. <laughs> Who among us? hasn't found ourselves in the middle of what we think is the entirely wrong story and desperately wanted to leave. In fact, we can't escape suffering or sickness, old age or death, but we can change the stories we tell ourselves about them. And these stories, in turn, change our experience of the events themselves. Stories get a bad rap in Zen. Right? We're supposed to get rid of them. But I don't think we can live without them. Of course, being a writer, it's convenient for me to think that. But I truly believe we're all story-making animals. 
Our brains just churn them out, even when we're sitting zazen and nothing is actually happening. The best we can do with our stories is to reality check them and exercise our creativity and discipline to imagine alternatives to our habitual interpretations. And finally, hold our chosen versions lightly, open to the possibility that we might have everything wrong. For example, I could say, I've had a hard time of it for the past four years, being sick and not knowing what to do to get better, undergoing painful and invasive procedures that didn't help, and constantly fighting our for-profit medical industrial complex and its all too common indifference and carelessness. This story is totally accurate. But when I feed it with my energy, my thoughts, I feel even more exhausted and defeated. Alternatively, I could say to myself, over the past four years, I've fought terrifying battles with a polite but unrelenting perseverance I wouldn't have imagined myself capable of. And obviously I've prevailed to some extent because I'm still here. I'm stronger than I thought. This is an equally true story with a more helpful impact on my ability to cope with my current life. The power of stories partly derives from the circular nature of time. We know that the past influences, literally flows into the future. But the present and future also flow back to transform the past. History and memories are revised continually in light of new insights and unfolding events. We have one experience in a moment, and then we have many different interpretations and experiences of it afterward, depending on what happens next. Miles Davis said, if you hit a wrong note, it's the next note you play that determines whether that note was good or bad. Life, like jazz, is all about improvisation. Which means, the good news, that our lives are completely redeemable in each moment, depending what we do now and what we do next. So the meaning of our lives never lies out there somewhere as an objective truth waiting to be found. It's something each of us creates for ourselves. As photographer Wright Morris says, the final act of coherence is an imaginative act, and the person who created the parts must create the whole into which they fit. I'm going to read that again because I really love that. The final act of coherence is an imaginative act, and the person who created the parts must create the whole into which they fit. So a capable artist should be able to make art out of anything, right? Just as we must live our lives through the causes and conditions that we're given. Our practice is making something out of this body and mind. 
And if we can't make meaning of this moment, that's not a fault of the moment, but a limitation of our perspective. To my mind, this is one of the most demanding and beautiful aspects of art and practice, that there are no excuses. The hindrances are the path. I remember being very moved by a story from an HIV-positive practitioner. His teacher told him, you've been given a really tough road. There's no doubt about that. But this is your road. What are you going to do with it? Tolstoy wrote that the aim of an artist, and I would add a spiritual practitioner, is not to solve a problem, but to make people love life in all its countless and inexhaustible manifestations. <coughs> to me, this is the essence of the Bodhisattva vow, to love samsara into nirvana. We're taught the image of the bodhisattva helping people across the river that separates samsara from nirvana. Yet these two shores are one land, as Dogen tells us over and over again. Each thing is everything. Practice is enlightenment. Delusion and enlightenment are interdependent, sewn together to make Buddha's robe. Samsara and nirvana suffuse each other. Our difficulty is perceiving them within each other, in seeing the whole. When we're in samsara, nirvana feels so far away that it doesn't even exist. And in nirvana, samsara doesn't matter. Sickness and health, life and death, so many things feel like this to us. So the bodhisattva's first task is a leap of the imagination, conceiving the other shore from where we stand now, and not only finding the oneness in the two, the unity of difference and sameness, of form and emptiness, but being this oneness, manifesting the equality of all things as a reminder and an inspiration. Author Rebecca Solnit observes that although kindness, compassion, and generosity are often talked about as though they're purely emotional virtues, they are also, and maybe first of all, imaginative ones. So here's my definition of enlightenment, what uh, Chohaku calls so-called enlightenment. <laughs> Acting in harmony with all things, seeing the world whole, living it whole, and loving it whole, which means we have to love it as it is and love ourselves as we are, while at the same time working for better from the world and from ourselves, burnishing the jewels of Indra's net. Dogen wrote a poem that begins, polishing the moon, cultivating clouds. I love these metaphors for our practice, which is why I called my blog Polishing the Moon. We polish something that is already so bright, the life force that animates all things. 
We polish it not for itself, but for us, so that through our practice of polishing, we reveal its brightness to ourselves. Polishing doesn't change the nature of life. It changes how we perceive it, the clarity with which we perceive it. Our effort makes visible what has always been there, what has never been lacking. The beauty attending the action of polishing is important because beauty helps us to love the world, which is the bodhisattva's calling. But it also matters where we find beauty. In Japanese aesthetics, asymmetry is considered more attractive than symmetry. This is unusual because humans are naturally drawn to symmetry. It reassures us, it's predictable, and gives us a sense of security. And we don't mind if that security is a delusion. In living beings, though, symmetry itself is usually an illusion. Artificial things can be engineered to be perfectly symmetrical, but natural ones are tricky. Most of us have two feet that look the same size, but aren't. We're not perfectly anything. So Suzuki Roshi teaches us to find perfection within imperfection, like wabi-sabi. This is now a common expression, but I would still like to read what I think is a beautiful definition of it. Wabi means simple, humble by choice, and in tune with nature. Someone who is perfectly herself and never craves to be anything else would be described as wabi. Sabi translates as the bloom of time. It connotes natural progression. Sabi things carry their years with dignity and grace. For example, the mottled surface of an oxidized silver bowl, the yielding gray of weathered wood, the elegance of a bare autumn ball. Wabi-sabi is what religious scholar Karen Armstrong might call a moral aesthetic, an understanding of beauty that teaches us to live better, more kindly and truthfully. Normally in our culture, we live in denial of the impermanence that we know lurks everywhere. We're conditioned to believe that old age is ugly, that it's morbid to speak of death. This denial costs us dearly, causing us to take for granted our own lives and the lives of people we love. Where and how we find beauty is not only an aesthetic choice, it's a moral one. As David Foster Wallace said in uh, a commencement speech that he gave, which you can find on YouTube, and I really recommend. It's called This is Water. And it's a very, it's probably the most Buddhist, non-Buddhist thing I've ever heard or read. In that talk, he says, the only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of god or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. In this country, it often seems to me that we worship money and youth in that order. I'm currently editing uh, Shohaku's commentary on Dogen's complete waka poems. And recently I was trying to find a synonym for a word he'd translated as primordial, which didn't really work in the context. So I duly consulted my thesaurus and was directed to a list of synonyms for old as follows. Wizened, decrepit, failing, run down. That was the whole list. <laughs> so there it was, proof that in English we simply have no words for age as a positive quality. But does impermanence really subtract value or does it enhance it? In Japan, the answer is clear. Cherry trees bloom unpredictably and fleetingly. Their blossoms are delicate and can be dropped by one good rain. Yet the blooming of these trees is celebrated throughout the country as a kind of sacred rite, observed with picnics under the trees day and night for as long as the flowers last. Some people even chase the blossoms from south to north, just as they pursue the turning autumn leaves in the opposite direction come fall. Between these pilgrimages is the summer ritual of fireworks, or in Japanese, hanabi, which translates literally as fire flower. All of these evanescent flashes of beauty are cherished for their impermanence which, given the nature of our world, makes much more sense than stipulating, well, I'll only invest my love in things that will reward my devotion by sticking around forever. Because the only things that won't die on us are ones that never lived. True vitality embraces aging and dying, not as design flaws to be overcome, or at least masked at any cost, but as valuable links in the chain of life. Living things are partly made of dead things. Death is the means <coughs> through which life renews itself. I sometimes imagine life like a child playing dress-up, proudly parading around one outfit after another, adopting and discarding them with equal zeal but appreciating this never-ending spectacle can feel impossible when we're sick or exhausted or grieving. I remember Reb Anderson saying he wanted a practice that could take him through blindness, through cancer, through anything that could happen, which makes sense. A practice we can only do when everything's going great isn't very helpful. So where was my unconditional practice when I was sick? Why had it forsaken me, or I it? Shohaku Okamura once talked about a low point in his life when he was broken down after years of hard labor building a temple in the woods of western Massachusetts. 
his body was in such bad shape that he couldn't sit zazen. And he, he was in his 20s then. For years, he had thought he was practicing proper zazen, meaning zazen without any gaining idea, or what homeless Kodo called good-for-nothing zazen. But when Okamura Roshi couldn't sit, he lost his sense of meaning in life. And then he realized that zazen had been his purpose which meant he hadn't been sitting true good-for-nothing zazen after all. This is such a delicate balance. We have to make zazen important enough to do it. But if we make it too important, or for the wrong reasons, if we make too much contingent on it, then we fall prey to spiritual materialism, which might be the worst kind of materialism, because it undermines the heart of our practice doing at least one thing in life for its own sake, with no agenda. For reasons unclear to me, I love Zazen and have sat monthly sessions for almost 10 years now. Yet, at my sickest, I couldn't sit for more than a few moments. I was in too much pain, physically and emotionally, and Zazen made me more aware of this, as it makes us more aware of everything. I couldn't write either, because my intention in writing is to inspire and empower people, and I was feeling neither myself. It's relatively easy to write the soaring tale of redemption after the fact, after having come through the maze. But what about while we're in the middle of it? And what if we never get through? As a priest, I am by definition a person of faith, so I don't like to admit that I don't have faith in much. Needless to say, this is an ongoing problem. I mean koan for me. I do think there are things worth believing in. I just have trouble believing in them all the way, trusting life completely, because we all know terrible things happen all the time. To my mind, the question is, can we make our dharmic courage equal to these terrible things? We are the ones who get to decide, personally and politically, whether we keep working for stories of victory or succumb to despair and call ourselves defeated. In her excellent book about activism called Hope in the Dark, Rebecca Solnit admits, everything is flawed, if you want to look at it that way. But what has helped me most is this. In Hurricane Katrina, there was bumper-to-bumper boat-trailer traffic going toward the city the day after the levees broke. None of those people said, I can't rescue everyone, therefore my efforts are worthless. All of them said, maybe I can rescue someone. And that is so important that I will risk my life and defy the authorities to do it. In transforming (coughs) suffering, the intention isn't only to make something with our lives, but also to shape what life makes us into. 
What am I becoming by saying these words or taking that action or thinking my habitual thoughts? One thing I do believe in is artistic alchemy, turning bitterness into beauty. Mollusks have hard shells because they have soft bodies. When a grain of sand irritates the softness, a mollusk wraps the sand in pearl. I've often wondered what that transformation costs for the oyster. When my particular body-mind was suffering most, I honestly couldn't do much about it. All I did was hold on, and that took everything I had. Lying in bed, I remembered how Uchiyama Roshi wrote that when you don't know what to do, waiting is an acceptable substitute for zazen. I thought often about the origin of the word heal, which isn't to cure, as we might think, but to make whole. And that wholeness, like enlightenment, is something we are never outside of. It's a given. Virginia Woolf wrote, the whole world is a work of art, and we are part of that work. Another given is that things change. This is the Dharma, the truth that we take refuge in. And things did change for me. I am not cured. I hope I will be someday, but I know that I don't know what will happen. We can know only this moment before it changes into something else. The notes, sweet, bitter, and silent, keep playing. The universal life force keeps changing shape. All we can do is let ourselves be one with it, dropping off body and mind into it. At the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, until the beginning of October, there is an exhibit of late paintings by René Magritte. Two of the paintings are titled Kiss. In one, a bird made of bright blue sky with puffy white clouds flies through the night. Magritte called this the bird of sky. In the other Kiss, a bird made of starry night flies through a hazy daytime sky. Light kisses dark, bird kisses sky. Magritte remarked that wherever our destiny leads us, we are always protected by an element of beauty, like the oyster protected by its pearl. In Genjo Koan, Dogen reminds us, when a fish swims, no matter how far it swims, it doesn't reach the end of the water. When a bird flies, no matter how high it flies, it cannot reach the end of the sky. In other words, no matter how turbulent or dark the sea or sky, we are never out of our element. We are not in the wrong story. In my first practice period at Stone Creek, we studied a draft of Okamura Roshi's book, Realizing Genjo Koan. In that book, he wrote two of my favorite sentences. When a bird is flying, the sky is also flying. 
the entire sky is the wings of the bird. We usually translate the Pali word dukkha as dissatisfaction or suffering, but it also means sky. Our practice asks us to remember that suffering, sickness, aging, and death are also the wings of the great bird flying, of the entire sky flying. Thank you.